This is the CMS Colloquium Podcast, produced by the Comparative Media Studies Program at MIT. For more information about Comparative Media Studies or on the Colloquium series, visit us online at cms.mit.edu. So I'd like to welcome Siva Vaidyanathan to this uh, first instantiation of Comparative Media Insights a little lecture series that we're having over the next few weeks. Um, Siva is Associate Professor of Media Studies and Law at the University of Virginia. And his work has offered a bridge between those two main do domains, media studies and law. Among other things, he's known for the term critical information studies. Interesting concept because it reconciles a pretty fierce divide between the world of cultural studies on the one side and political economy on the other. Those are the two main feeders into the field of media studies. So this work kind of offers a bridge in that space. Um, this project of critical information studies calls for a systematic investigation of, quote, structures, functions, habits, norms, and practices of information culture. And it's really about looking at notions of cost, access, and control, and their implications for what Siva calls global semiotic democracy. This will all decode in tonight's talk. Siva's authored a couple of books, including Copyrights and Copy Wrongs, The Rise of Intellectual Property and How It Threatens Creativity, The Anarchist in the Library, How the Clash Between Freedom and Control is Hacking the Real World and Crashing the System, Rewiring the Nation, the Place of Technology in American Studies, his home discipline, American Studies. And his talk tonight comes from his latest project, The Googleization of Everything, How One Company is Disrupting Culture, Commerce, and Community, and Why We Should Worry. Interesting project because it took form on a blog. It started its life off in a blog uh, where Siva was sort of floating some of his ideas and getting some response from the public and crafting it, meanwhile, into a text. And that'll be out in the fall, I think, huh? Yeah, or, looks like it, So, if all goes well. Siva. Thank That's you very much, William. <laughs> First, let me apologize for my voice. Um, uh, this isn't how I really sound. Uh, uh, I usually have a much more resonant voice. I've had really bad bronchitis for about a week, and I'm like at the very tail end of it. Not contagious, as far as I can tell. No one in my family's gotten sick. But, um, uh, but anyway, my voice is just barely holding on, and I've been running through the rain all day, various meetings. So uh, I'm thrilled that everyone could come here uh, this evening on this rainy evening. Um, certainly, you had something warmer and drier to do than then come here to listen to me. So uh, I'm quite honored. Now, um, as William said, I've been uh, uh, working on this book uh, now for about four years. I guess you didn't mention how long I'd been working on it. So four years ago, Google actually seemed simpler, if you can believe it, right? It, it, it seemed just as pervasive and just as important and just as central to our lives. Um, but it didn't do as many things as it does today. In fact, uh, this week it does more things than it did two weeks ago. Um, about every couple weeks, uh, Google announces some new initiative, uh, I think largely to drive me crazy. Um, or, or just about anybody else trying to write a book uh, about it. Um, uh, about a year ago, Talking Points Memo had a, a bunch of people who were writing about Google, including myself, uh, get together and, and talk about what was then the most recent book on Google. And we immediately fell into a commiseration mode about what it was like to try to make sense of this uh, amazing institution. Now, just about everybody else who's written about Google has written the Google story of some kind, right? This, this remarkable uh, rise in merely 11 years um, from essentially 
a PhD thesis, right? This idea, it was actually a paper, not even a thesis, um, just a paper, into uh, one of the most successful companies we've ever seen. One of the few companies making tremendous amounts of money this quarter. Um, and certainly a company that has managed to um, affect a remarkable number of areas of life. A remarkable number of industries, ranging from newspapers to booksellers to uh, uh, other email companies. I mean, there are just so many different ways that Google has shaken up and challenged um, the status quo in a variety of industries to the point where companies get scared to death when Google starts to creep into their business. Just a few weeks ago, Google announced that on its uh, operating, phone operating system, its mobile device operating system, it will be offering turn-by-turn -turn GPS directions not unlike what you just spent $250 for uh, for a Magellan system to sit on your dashboard, right? So you can imagine um, that uh, the companies that make GPS uh, are freaking out right now because they know that if Google is offering this at zero marginal dollars, uh, soon other mobile phone companies will have to come through and figure out a way to offer a similar service and that's gonna put severe price pressure on the GPS market. Um, why does Google do this? Because Google doesn't think about selling boxes with uh, computer code embedded in it that, that you interact with separately. Google thinks, well, your position in the world is merely information. And information is what we do, Google says, right? Information is what we process. Information is what we Googleize. And therefore, uh, it's figured out a way to um, get into almost any kind of business that it can interpret as information processing. It's all fair game to Google. And of course, the style with which it processes and offers information to us comes to us at, as I said, zero marginal cost. That's not zero cost, and that's a really important thing to remember. We've all invested many thousands of dollars in the platforms and devices that we use to interact with Google. Um, but as far as what we're concerned in terms of our relationship with Google, we're not writing a check to Google, so it's basically zero marginal dollars start using Google services under most conditions. There are very few cases in which one has to write a check to Google. More often than not, we actually get checks from Google. If you happen to run a blog that um, hosts Google AdWords, um, uh, I'm sorry, AdSense, you end up getting, uh, getting checks, maybe small, maybe large, from Google. So it's, it's a really interesting relationship we have with this company. Well, how did we get here in 11 years? Um, how did I get to this point of being so immersed in these questions in such a short period of time? Well, in 2004, uh, Google announced this little project, um, kind of, uh, oh, modest, that it would simply digitize every book in the University of Michigan Library. You know, no, no big deal. Um, and in addition, it was going to do all the public domain works in the Bodleian and it was going to do all the public domain works in Harvard's library, and it was going to do all the public domain works in the New York Public Library, and all the public domain works in Stanford's library, um, just for fun. Um, and uh, we were uh, puzzled by this, right? We were elated by the notion, right? Those of us who spend our time trying to find the right book, the right sentence, the right paragraph in the right book, um, suddenly realized that um, that search time could be collapsed tremendously. But I think we all had a little bit of um, queasiness about this too because um, what do we sacrifice for that convenience? What are the costs of this? Well in 2004 when that was announced I immediately started thinking about those costs, right? The cost of the collapse of inconvenience or for that matter the cost of convenience. Um, 
what do we get if we um, let a, 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 a private company that is devoted to harvesting our personal information and our habits um, uh, and, and rendering advertising based on those habits, what, what are the basic premises involved in that transaction? What kind of results are we likely to get when we do our research using Google Book Search? What are the implications for the people who write books, the people who publish books, the people who read books, the people who, whose job it is to organize books, and the values that they have worked on honing and promulgating for two centuries? Right? Those are the sorts of questions that, that occurred to me. And I realized, well, by looking deeply at the Google Books project four years ago, many of the same questions were applicable to a variety of other ways that Google was moving in the world. And I think you'll see what I have to say about, about uh, Google Street View uh, applies in many ways to uh, Google Web Search and Google Book Search, um, to name two areas. So it was the book search that really drove me into this. And I had a hook into it because I had done all this previous work on copyright. And Google was pushing a, a pretty audacious vision of uh, its copyright position uh, when dealing with the books from the University of Michigan Library that were published after 1923. Um, basically, what Google was saying is <clears throat> they are going to scan in all these books and put all the images in their servers. And users, you and I, we're never really going to get to see the full scan, scanned images of copyrighted works unless the copyright owner grants permission through some sort of deal. Um, uh, but what we would get is what Google called a snippet, a small selection of the text uh, with the search terms highlighted. So we would hopefully get a sense of how these search terms operated within that text. And we would be offered a series of links that would drive us to libraries that might have the book or bookstores where we could buy the book. So Google argued that this system does a few, a few important things here. First and foremost, it potentially drives sales of books that are possibly in print, maybe even out of print, might generate interest enough that a publisher brings a book back into print. So Google said that nothing bad about that, right? Secondly, Google's offering us such a small percentage of the larger text. <coughs> Excuse me. I have a four-year-old who has been training me to cough into my arm. She's very, she's very good at this. She lectures me every time. Um, uh, so the, the second part of their copyright uh, de defense was essentially that they're offering such a small portion of the original text that it can't possibly be considered an infringement, right? This is classic fair use argument. A very small portion, its economic effect is, if anything, positive, probably, probably zero upon the original work. Um, and obviously, uh, even though Google is a commercial service, most of the use to which it would be put by you and me would be scholarly. So it seemed like a nice sort of public service. And Google expressed its, its vision as a public service, right? That it was actually doing a lot to extend book learning, if you will, extend the, the life of the library into our lives. So I looked at this and I said, well, I actually, in sort of realistic terms, looking at how courts had recently looked at fair use cases, especially in New York City, which is where this case was going to be once the publishers decided to sue, I actually didn't think that Google had that strong a case. I thought it was neat that Google was trying to put its formidable wealth and lawyerly power behind expanding fair use. Rah, rah, great. But I thought it ultimately futile. I thought when it came right down to it, because in this country, basically law and power are the same thing, 
just as empower the same thing when you get up into the higher reaches, um, Google was going to go up against some very formidable established industry powers in this country, powers like Time Warner and Disney, uh, Bertelsmann and so forth. And, and the Supreme Court ultimately was going to have to decide on what sort of vision of copyright to adopt. Um, Google's position was essentially this whole time that um, uh, what Google was doing to books was exactly what it does on the web. So what's the problem? And that's exactly right. Because on the web, when you put a page up, you're essentially, whether you know it or not, granting permission to search engines to come along and make a copy of it and put a copy in, its, in their index. Right? They need to do that to be able to make sense of the web, to be able to deliver search results rather quickly. So the default norm of the web is that copyright doesn't actually work. Copyright doesn't actually attach in an absolute way because the web works the following way. If you don't want search engines to, uh, to copy your stuff, you have to opt out. You actually have to put a, a, a signal in your, in, in your code to say, search engines, stay away. Right? So copyright is, um, you have to opt out of being copied. You have to opt into the copyright system if you're a publisher on the web if you want to keep people away. But why would you keep people away? What's the point of having a web page if Google's not going to find it or any other search engine's not going to find it? So the, the norms of the web are basically 180 degrees from the norms of the real world, where if you publish a book, uh, you're essentially telling everybody all rights reserved. You can't copy this without my permission. With some exceptions, you can, you can actively open up your works to the world right, by declaring it public domain or adopting a Creative Commons license or any number of uh, 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 interesting ways to lock it open. But basically, you still have to act. But the default is that if someone wants to copy, copy your work, they have to ask permission and possibly even pay for it. Right? So it's a very different norm in the real world. So Google was reaching out of the web into the real world saying, OK, real world, from now on, you're conforming to the standards of the web. And that was a pretty radical move. To Google, it's totally normal. Because as I said earlier, to Google, whatever's information is fair game. Right? And the very act of scanning, the very act of digitizing, is the act of rendering it as information, of Googleizing it. And therefore, that whatever it Googleized would be subject to its basic architecture. And its basic architecture is, if you have a problem, you can still opt out. And that's really important. Because that's what they said. They said, look, if you're a copyright holder, if you're an author, and you don't want to be in this system, you don't want to be Googleized, just send us an email, and you're out. Easy. Easy opt out, right? That is its default position with a number of things, as we'll see with Street View as well. I guess I have to, to advance it. I have to click over here. We don't have any devices for clicking, right? All right, so what do I mean by Googleization? This exact thing, right? Having something in the world rendered as information and then processed. <laughs> oh, see, now you've given away all my good stuff here. So that's fine. Yeah, I can do that. Yeah, that's fine. Uh, maybe not. I'll figure it out. I can walk back and forth. So we've got this high security device here to, to mess up. That's cool. All right, so where am I? All right, what do I mean by everything? Three big domains of human activity are sort of part of what I'm looking at here. Communication, all the different uh, ways we communicate, technologies we use to communicate. Mobile phones, I think, are the best example here where Google is really shaking up the mobile phone industry. And in the United States, we all know it needs shaking up. So this is one of the coolest things Google's doing, is really 
um, uh, making the mobile phone industry rethink what it does from top to bottom. The Googleization of knowledge, the best example of that is, of course, the Google Books Project, but also the, way th the ways that Google Web Search is structuring knowledge, structuring value in our lives. The way it's delivering results in a linear form that, that clearly uh, have a tremendous advantage, right? Because results on the first page are almost all that matters. And so if you want to be known or you want to make a sale, you better get your page on, uh, you better get your link on the first page of Google searches, right? And, and there is a dynamic to this that's built into Google's algorithms that is really fascinating and the subject of another talk I would give some other time, uh, but I wanted to focus on Street View for this one. And then the last one, the Googleization of us. <clears throat> and by this I mean the ways in which Google takes our expressions, our personalities, our fetishes, our interests, our obsessions, uh, and processes, processes, processes these into a number of enhanced services. Pardon me? Enhanced services, services that can deliver greater value to you if you were the sort of customer who lets Google profile you. You very well might be one of these customers. In fact, if you are the sort of person who uses Gmail or uses iGoogle or uses even Google Book Search and signs up to have an account uh, with Google Book Search, uh, registers with Google in any way, then you are essentially a power user of Google, a Google Prime user, someone who is uh, essentially letting Google create a very detailed and long-term profile of you and your interests. Uh, and um, and making you essentially a distinct customer. Now what you get for that is a tremendous amount of service, right? Because Gmail is really the best possible email interface you can anyone's come across, right? Uh, tremendous amount of service through Google Book Search, through iGoogle, through any number of services that Google provides that require registration and more to come, right? Once you're part of the Google tribe, uh, you get to um, explore Google in all sorts of interesting ways. Uh, you get to use Google Analytics, you get to Use Google Earth. I mean, it's you know, it, it's an amazing array of services. Uh, but what fascinates me here is the transaction. What are we giving up for all that stuff, right? Because we're not writing checks. What are we to Google? Of course, we're not Google's customers. Google calls us users, but basically, we're Google's products. We are what Google sells to advertisers. And once we understand that premise, right, that we are Google's product and not Google's customers, and that that should necessarily affect your relationship with the company. It shouldn't make you say, "I'm never going to deal with that company again," because You'd have to say the same thing to NBC, right? And you're Google's, you're NBC's product as well. Um, it, it's, it's not a radically new model of advertising, but once you understand that, you can also have a different sense of awareness and care when dealing with Google. And so one of the purposes of my book is to get us to be more sophisticated users of Google. Now, Google is, of course, omnipresent in our culture. Probably the reason you're here has nothing to do with uh, my name and more to do with my subject, right? Because it is everywhere in your lives as much as it is everywhere in my life. Um, although you probably didn't have to live with it quite as much as I did over the last four years. Um, Google is also omnipotent. It's one of the few companies that's actually making a tremendous amount of money. It's omniscient. It seems to be watching everything we do. Uh, and it is, of course, benevolent. It is, in so many ways, like a supreme being. Or you might say it is like a sovereign because Google actually governs the web. If anyone governs the web, Google governs the web. Right? We think about the internet as being an ungoverned space, hardly. And there are a number of different ways that powerful or weak institutions, for that matter, influence the governance of the web. Right? There are, there are consortia, open consortia that set standards 
Um, there, there's uh, ICANN, which has, I think, less and less influence over the web every day, but nonetheless an important influence. But basically nothing governs the web like Google because nothing determines what matters more than Google. Nothing determines what's in or out, what's invisible or visible like Google. Google is Caesar. Google runs the web because no one else will. Because it was a vacuum, right? So Google gets to set the standards. Google gets to determine what is important. Now Google does so in a, an enlightened way. I'm willing to give them that much credit. An enlightened way, in a way that um, is quasi-democratic, not quite democratic, right? Google, just to, to roughly describe how it judges what's important in web search, um, Google counts incoming links to a particular page, right? So let's say you search for Red Sox. Uh, you search for Red Sox, it's gonna, it's gonna give you a, a set of results. And the highest results are going to be those pages with the term Red Sox that have the greatest number of incoming links, links pointing to these sites, in other words, votes, that people who make web pages create. Right? That's number one. But there's something weighted to that as well. There's a weight attached. Votes from other powerful websites count more than votes from, say, my blog or your blog. Right? So if, uh, if the top Boston Red Sox site, and if you're doing this search right now, I'm predicting it's the official Major League Baseball site for the Red Sox. It offers the schedule and the calendar and all that stuff. And um, uh, that, and probably the second one is uh, maybe ESPN. Um, uh, ESPN's website section. Uh, somewhere around sixth or seventh, you'll start to see fan pages, but you might actually see some like sporting goods stores in there, uh, right? To um, uh, Bob's store is probably in there too, right? Because it's a place people buy Red Sox stuff. Um, now, <coughs> and just to know that I'm not just playing to the crowd, I'm actually a Yankees fan. I shouldn't, full disclosure, say, uh, but I am avoiding all cheap shots um, uh, for, for the sake of all the uh, broken hearts and hurt feelings in the room. So um, uh, now uh, think about that, though. Incoming links are not, of course, equal. As I said, a link from, say, CNN, uh, CNN's website or the New York Times website to a particular Boston Red Sox site counts much more than a link from my blog or your blog. So. Uh, in, in, there's a pretty serious caste system on the web that Google then essentially establishes and, and maintains. One, uh, alpha sites, right? The, the hundred most important sites on the web, Boing Boing being one of them, for instance, um, have a tremendous power in determining what's important on the web. Uh, people who make links have a tremendous amount of power. Not as much as you know, the big sites, but nonetheless, if you happen to have a blog, you are actually not among an active blog. You're, you're among the elites who create the web, right? Because not everybody makes web links out there. Facebook doesn't count, right? But not everybody creates web pages and web links. If you do, you are among the web elite, and therefore Google counts you as a citizen. If you are merely someone who uses the web, shops on eBay, shops on Amazon, reads the, the scores the next day, um, you are not an elite citizen of the web. You might not even count. You might not even have... Um, uh, that much authority. Now, clicks do matter to, to Google's algorithm, but not as much as links. Um, so you have, might have a little say in it. Uh, now, Google's uh, claim to benevolence is often taken as being a, a, an important, essential part of its corporate image. And, and I would assert that, yes, it is, because it's this notion of don't be evil is, is something that just about everyone I talk to has heard about or thinks about. Uh, and a lot of people 
if they don't buy it, at least accept it as, as part of what's important about Google. Um, it's important to remember that don't be evil really meant don't be Microsoft in the early days, right? Don't make code that locks people in, locks information in. Um, don't do deals that are so exclusive as to limit competition, those sorts of things. So it actually speaks a lot to this question of defaults. Um, because as with everything in Google, you are free to leave at any time, unlike with Microsoft, where it's really hard to leave, right? With Google, it's free to export your data. I mean, it's easy to export your data. Um, nonetheless, nonetheless, the defaults are basically set in Google's favor at all times, right? The defaults are set for maximum surveillance and information processing. Uh, for um, uh, the defaults are set basically to keep as much information as possible in Google servers, uh, unless you specifically opt out of, of certain areas. Um, now, the "Don't be evil." Uh, uh, motto is something that within Google still matters. It's not taken naively, though. Um, people understand that what's going on at Google is basically problem solving. Um, and most of what they do is actually morally neutral. Uh, and little of what they do would you know, crush kittens anyway. So you know, it's, it's not as if, I mean, you can imagine if a tobacco company suddenly said, don't be evil. That would be news, right? Um, that would be special. But uh, it's really not that elaborate. Nonetheless, I think it's an important thing uh, to consider in this, largely because one of the arguments I'm making in this book is that we shouldn't be fooled by um, uh, declarations of corporate responsibility. I think that's very unhealthy, and I think it speaks to our own uh, acceptance of market fundamentalism, this notion that um, what, uh, what problems there are to be solved um, should be filled, or should, the vacuum should be filled by uh, uh, by companies willing to act because the public sector has no role or no teeth. Um, and uh, this is a concept I call public failure. And I see time and time again companies like Google, and Google especially, fill in for either the gaps of the mistakes or the, um, the impotence of, uh, of, of what could be public action or state action. Uh, the best example of this is that after Katrina, um, only Walmart was able to deliver water. Right? FEMA could not, so Walmart did. So market fundamentalists took this as evidence that the state has no business delivering water, where uh, many of us said, wait, isn't the lesson here that the state should learn how to deliver water better than Walmart? But uh, that's essentially a debate that I'm trying to uh, work my way into the side. This is actually Google's mission statement. Now, um, don't be evil is kind of charming as a motto. This is kind of daunting as a mission, right? There's nothing actually charming about this. This is pretty audacious, right? It's like a sovereign. It's like a divine being. It's, it's like a big university, right? Um, it's, a, it's a pretty stunning um, uh, display of, uh, of, of uh, moxie, right? Or some other 1930s word that, you know, gumption. And this is what fascinates me much more than don't be evil. Like, what the heck is going on here? First of all, organizing the world's information, they're making information, right? They're not just organizing passively what's out there. They're making new information. Every time they scan a book in, they're making new forms of information, right? At least information renderable, right? Every time they take an image through Google Street View, they are creating new data that they can then process and render. So there's nothing quite so passive there. Now, Google Street View, as I said, is uh, uh, the subject of the, the, so the piece I'm, I've broken off to talk to you about today because it, 
it brings in a couple of big points. One, this notion that everything is potentially information. Secondly, this notion that um, uh, this notion that when Google decides to organize the world's information and actually tries to do its business in other parts of the world, it runs into a series of complexities um, that it perhaps didn't expect and, uh, and uh, get really interesting. Uh, and Google's response is even more interesting, so we'll see this. So I've, I've been wondering about Street View. Uh, it debuted in 2007 in big cities across the United States, Boston, San Francisco, New York. Um, and uh, at the time I was living in New York, I should have pointed out that first slide was actually my front door, the front door of my apartment complex in New York when I was living there. Um, uh, and so, of course, I was fascinated by it. A lot of people were fascinated by it. Immediately, within days of Google Street View debuting, uh, people were posting on Flickr images snipped from Google Street View that were sort of embarrassing, right? A lot of people naked in windows, um, a lot of cats sitting in windows, um, a lot of naked cats sitting in windows. You know, just a lot of, a lot of weird, you know, because you could see some goofy stuff on, on Google Street View. And um, as people were scouring the streets, they were finding this stuff. Um, so I wondered, though, do people use Google Street View for anything beyond gawking, right? Beyond checking out your own area to see if you got caught or um, just trying to find goofy stuff. Uh, and so I asked people um, on Flickr, on Facebook, and on my blog for sort of stories of how and why they use Google Street View. Um, raise your hand if you've ever used Google Street View for something actually like useful, utilitarian. Yeah, in the back, sir. What do you use it for? Okay, good, right, that's the most common answer. And it really makes sense, right? You're looking for a place to live, you wanna see for instance, what's around you, right? Do you see uh, dangerous things? Do you see, and you also want to know kind of just generally where it is and how to get there and how far from the from the, the, the public transportation hubs and so forth, right? So I asked people, and that's mostly what I got. I got a few, like, you know, I was going to conferences. I wanted to scope out the hotel. Uh, uh, one of the more common and interesting answers is, um, I went to a restaurant last night, couldn't remember the name, so I retraced my steps and I saw the sign. You know, that's you know, cute stuff like that. So, I mean, clearly people are bringing it into their lives uh, and making it useful because they're aware of it. Um, so the best use I found, uh, Cory Doctorow, who's a friend of mine, um, science fiction writer, said that when he was uh, composing his book, Little Brother, uh, Cory travels everywhere in the world, right? He pretty much lives out of his laptop and a suitcase. Um, uh, he was writing in the Singapore airport and he couldn't remember the exact details of this corner of O'Farrell Street uh, in San Francisco where he was setting the scene. So he, oh, you know, <laughs> opened up his laptop, he pulled up Google Street View, he walked along the corner of Hyde and O'Farrell, and he started writing, describing the scene. I thought that was pretty cool. One of the best uses I had ever heard um, of uh, Google Street View. I actually, it, it's remarkably useful for something like that. Um, another friend of mine, David De La Pena, who's an architect in Davis, California, said that architects these days love using Google Street View to check out the visions of their sites from the perspective of the site, right? So if they're designing a site, uh, instead of uh, tacking up a number of photos from different angles, they can actually use the you know, 360 degree function and sort of examine what the site would look like looking out and looking in. It can really help um, architects while sitting in their, uh, in their studios. Now, uh, as Google Street View rolled out across the world in 2008 and 2009, it, it encountered a number of problems. The most notable ones uh, were in Japan. Um, so uh, I can actually uh, read you a bit from a blog um, that uh, someone was nice enough to translate um, so I can get you. Uh, this was uh, written by a search engine uh, 
engineer named Osamu Higuchi. Uh, he wrote on his blog in August 2008, he wrote an open letter to Google staff. Uh, and this is what he said. The residential roads of Japan's urban areas are part of people's living space. And it is impolite to photograph other people's living spaces. Uh, he pointed out that in the United States, the boundary line between private space and public space is the property line that abuts a public road. But he wrote, for people living in Japan, though, the situation is quite the opposite. The residential streets in front of a house, the so-called alleyway, feels more like part of one's own living space, like part of the yard. Um, so he explained that private citizens care for and personalize and decorate these narrow public streets as if they were part of their own land. So he writes, when we walk along an alleyway like that, we don't stare at and scrutinize the houses along the way. So in other words, the scale of Japan, uh, especially older parts of urban Japan, um, have a lot to do with the sense of propriety and the sense of what is public and what is not. Now, to Google, of course, anything you can see from the street counts as public. Uh, and anything that Google can capture counts as capturable, counts as information worthy of processing. And Google's initial response in Japan when this protest and a number of others were raised was, and this will start to sound familiar, it's no problem. If anyone has a problem, you just let us know and we'll, we'll remove the image, right? You can opt out. You can opt out. In addition, Google said there are really no privacy problems, no individual problems, because as you can see here, we blur every face. And we blur every license, oh, you don't see any license plates here, but they, they do, they blur license plates. So no one will ever know that this is your image. Well, of course, um, this couple uh, became notorious um, uh, for uh, the position of this gentleman's hand, which I actually don't see as um, quite troublesome. It's impossible to tell what's going on with the hand. You can't necessarily assume the worst. Nonetheless, um, this became a photograph that flew around the web as a, as a symbol of what could go wrong with Google Street View and, and the invasion, the invasive uh, power of it. Um, and you, we see this replicated everywhere that Google Street View um, debuts uh, throughout 2007, 8, and 9. Uh, we see people immediately bring up potentially embarrassing photos, say Google Street View is invading our lives. Uh, we see massive protests, or at least loud protests, and we see Google say, hey, no problem, you can always opt out. And then it dies down after a while. Um, well, it didn't die down in Japan. It got to the point where there was enough pressure from both the government and from uh, activists that Google decided to reshoot the entire island, or multiple islands, right? They, they ended up um, lowering the camera uh, on the car to uh, get a less intrusive view, uh, a, a, a more friendly angle on everything. Um, so that's just, uh, I think, the, the, the biggest, loudest example. In the UK in March 2009, they had a very different set of reactions. Um, because in the UK, people had been sort of hip to what was going on with Google Street View. It had actually debuted in many parts of Western Europe first, and of course had debuted in the US earlier. So a lot of people knew it was coming, and there were accounts of the cars <coughs> excuse me, rolling through. So a lot of people made sure to make their feelings known to Google as the cars passed. Um, uh, but nonetheless, uh, uh, people in England were quick to try to find the embarrassing photographs, including people exiting a sex shop, um, and of course, the standard scene of someone throwing, outside of a, throwing up outside of a pub at about 5.30 or 6 in the evening, um, which actually, if you've ever walked through London, is pretty much a scene you can see on uh, every corner at 5.30 or 6 p.m. Um, so of course, this was going to happen. Um, there was actually a, a much stronger reaction in the UK than almost anywhere else. 
Uh, it's one of the few places where there were actual street protests. Uh, in a village called, called Broughton in Cambridgeshire, um, hundreds of people came out into the street to surround a Google car and protest it, taking images of, uh, of this village. Um, and it caused quite a bit of fury in the, in the British press. Um, now, Google's reaction was very interesting. I, I had a long conversation with the gentleman who runs the, the Google projects for um, the UK, Ireland, and Benelux countries. And he said that basically, first of all, they expected this reaction because they get it everywhere. Secondly, that it only seemed more acute in the UK because of the nature of British newspapers. Pretty believable. Um, but I, 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 can't, I, kept, I, I kept thinking that there is something special going on here. First of all, it wasn't just that the British newspapers were more sensational than, than most. Um, uh, but it was that, that people were actually acting against the cars, which I had not seen in any of the other accounts. Um, and and the, the Broughton situation, I think, was particularly unique. But what happened was, of course, Google's justification of this was that, but look how popular it is. After Google Street View debuted, Google had the largest volume of use in the history of its business in the UK. Well, of course it did, because everyone was reading these scary stories about Google Street View and looking to see if they had been caught coming up at a sex shop the, the previous day, right? So, um, so their, Google's justification is uh, the panic is overblown, the criticism is overblown, and look how popular it is. Because, of course, everyone's looking for it. Well, not everyone, unfortunately, is looking for it. We'll get to that in a second. Um, the other interesting thing about this that struck me about this, and I tried to get someone to explain this, right? England is already the most watched country in the world, with the possible exception of, you know, Saudi Arabia, right? So just about everybody in England has a camera on them anyway. These are not live cameras, right? This is a one-time snapshot. It's hardly the level of surveillance that people in the UK are already used to. And yet, uh, there was this allergy to Google doing something far less invasive than what their state is already doing to them. Uh, and I, I still haven't come up with an adequate explanation for that. Now, it's important to remember the, that attention is what Google is generating here. Google actually appreciates the, the controversy. Because, um, uh, of course, the controversy drives people to Google Street View. And once they see it a few times, they get used to it. Um, they are uh, more likely to spend more time using Google-based products and services and more time using the web. Um, they are also interested in the public doing the editing, right? This is the labor trick that Google manages in just about all of its content businesses. Um, no one at Google creates videos, well, people do, but let's just say, look, most of the videos at YouTube are created by you and me, right? Google doesn't pay for that content. It pays to host that content. It takes some risk um, and some administrative cost to do it. Nonetheless, Google's basically uh, riding on our labor uh, as we upload content. Uh, same with Blogger, right? We do all the labor, Google rides on the content. Um, with most of the web, we create web pages, Google makes money off of it. Uh, with, um, uh, with Google Street View, Google is acting. This is one of those rare situations where Google is actually creating the content, but it's using us to edit. It's using us to scour the web and come up with embarrassing images that we take away. Um, so it is, uh, it's an important lesson in this uh, interesting political economy of, uh, of attention on the web. Now, <coughs> um, so this is the, this, this gentleman, Mr. Barron, who I uh, talked to at Google, and this is his explanation. 
um, everywhere that there was a problem. We are committed to abiding by the laws of the countries that we operate in, but also taking into account local norms and local customs. This is a standard phrase that every Google official will use when discussing any sort of controversy anywhere in the world. They also use this phrase, privacy is very important to us, like a mantra. Like a mantra they use. It's amazing um, whenever you bring up any of these issues. Well, what do they mean by privacy? They never really explain that. Do they mean the same thing we mean? Do I mean the same thing you mean? Well, it's not very clear, and it's not very clear in their policies and in their actions either. But what we do know is that every time they're in trouble, they invoke this, this, um, this, this, this sort of double level of excuses, of, of excuse making. One, that um, you can opt out of anything. Any image you want, you can take off. Second, they will blur all the license plates and all the faces. So in Canada, when Google Street View started taking photos in the spring of 2009, Canadian privacy officials went to Google and said, wait a minute, we have a problem here. This Canadian law is not that different from European. For instance, if you're going to take, uh, if a commercial entity is going to take a picture of people in a public space, they have to get their permission. Um, and uh, that's a pretty standard policy throughout Western Europe and in Canada. Um, it's, there are exemptions for journalism and exemptions for uh, private photography, but if you are part of a commercial entity like this, you've got to clear the rights for people's personalities. A right we don't have, we don't have that sort of personality right in the United States, unless you're famous. Um, and even then, again, exceptions for quasi-journalism. Now, um, uh, so Google went, met with the privacy officials in Canada and basically said, no problem, we've got a system specifically worked out for Canada, and here it is, we're going to blur all the license plates and blur all the faces and you can opt out. Right? That's exactly what it said in Germany, it's exactly what it said in England, it's exactly what it said in Greece, it's exactly what it said in Japan. In every case, the government either um, didn't buy it or bought it. In Canada, they bought it. In Greece and Germany and Japan, the government did not buy it. said, no, not good enough. So in all those places, Google is having to, to either dispose of the original shots and, and make sure not to keep the original non-blurred versions in its servers, or having to reshoot, or having to give up entirely. Um, but there are many more places where uh, uh, Google Street View has been accepted almost without question. Now, what is Google doing in all these different areas, right? It's acting universally to very specific cases. Because uh, even though Germany and Canada have very similar privacy laws, it doesn't mean that they have exactly the same level of concern for the exact same historical reasons, as you might imagine. Uh, Japan obviously has particular uh, 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 cultural issues with uh, Google Street View that do not necessarily carry um, uh, very far from Japan. Uh, and yet, in every case, Google is acting exactly the same way until forced. So I started looking at various statements that the leaders of Google have made about cultural specificity, um, about universalism, uh, and I found that basically they see their mission as universalizing. Um, they see their actions as, uh, uh, as um, only specifically tailored when forced. So I'll give you a good example. Um, if you search in the United States for the word Jew, you will find uh, second or third, you will find uh, an anti-Semitic site called Jewwatch. It's been in the top three for years. Um, and anti-Semites keep what they call Google bombing, making sure to present strong links to it to keep it high. Uh, the Anti-Defamation League has been trying its best to knock it down. They've been in talks with Google about knocking it down. Google won't alter the system in the United States. They basically say the web is the web. The web is ugly. The, it's the computer. Don't blame us. 
And, and something like our algorithms are neutral, which is a wacky statement. Nonetheless, um, so that's how it is in the US. But in Germany, of course, if you go to google.de, do a search for Jew, you will not find that site anywhere. Obviously, the German government will not let you, uh, will not let Google present that site. Um, you will probably find the video of Borat singing Throw the Jew Down the Well, which shows up on almost every Google search for that, but that's probably another story. Nonetheless, so Google will make culturally specific moves when forced by law, but not when it just is the right thing to do, right? Um, so, I mean, this is a statement that Eric Schmidt made that, that basically illustrates this notion that he believes everywhere, everyone everywhere is the same. So this isn't necessarily cultural imperialism because Google doesn't really care what the specific content is. Google doesn't specifically care whether Jewwatch is visible one place or another, but, but the protocols and the pipelines and the systems, uh, the assumptions of this process of rendering information, that is something Google wants to universalize. So I use this clunky phrase called protocol imperialism I'm not even happy with. I use a lot of clunky phrases I'm not crazy about because I can't come up with better ones. But basically what I'm trying to argue here is that um, Google has this universalizing vision that's not about making sure that Britney Spears is available everywhere or that you know dogs on skateboards are available everywhere. That's just a happy coincidence. What Google really wants is to have this manner of experiencing the web universal. And if this manner of experiencing the web becomes universal to the extent that it's naturalized and expected, all the better for Google, because that's the Google style of experiencing the web, all part of Google's efforts to govern. Now, here's the key under thing to understand about opting out. The reason why opting out when, uh, is not good enough. To know that you must opt out, you must understand that you can opt out. To know that you must opt out, you have to believe there is something worth investigating. Right? You have to think that, first of all, you have to know that there is such a thing as Google Street View, and not everybody does. You have to, secondly, know that you might have a picture of yourself urinating up there. Right? I guarantee you this gentleman does not know that he's up there, right? or he didn't at least know by the time I was able to pick up his picture so rudely. Um, basically, only if you are among the web elites, the people who actually understand how defaults work and understand how Google works, are you in a position to control your image as it is rendered through Google? And this is true in almost every sense. But for people who don't know that there's an embarrassing picture of them up there, until it's far too late, they don't get to benefit from the opt-out situation. Um, so opting out is not a neutral way to proceed. It is a way that's heavily rigged in Google's favor. It's heavily rigged for maximum exposure and maximum uh, interrogation by Google systems. Um, and so it's one of the areas that I would push for a better understanding and perhaps better regulations to try to get a sense of the power of these defaults, because these defaults are really where the action is in the Google universe. So that's all I have a voice for for now. I hope that's a good place to start, and I would love to get some, uh, some conversation going about it. Thanks very much. Uh, thanks, Eva. Uh, that's right. This doesn't. This isn't just a recording. Um, 
so to pick up then I guess where you left off, uh, you know, if it is the Googleization of everything, what's the best response to it? Yeah, okay, multiple responses. One, um, uh, I think we have to recognize that when we have these discussions about Google's effect on the world in rooms such as this, that we are not including um, the people who don't uh, behave in a sophisticated way toward the web or toward Google, right? So any policy that's based on the behavior of elites is missing the point. Um, and so many of Google's systems and policies are to benefit the elites, right? This is not a democratic process. It's not a fully open process. Um, so, so two things. One, I actually think that we should be exploring a notion of um, public search standards. Uh, they don't necessarily have to be uh, codified as law, but that might be the way to go. Um, but I do think that, for instance, just to take one example, right? We trust Google not to pollute its what it calls its organic web search results. Um, uh, we trust Google not to corrupt or pollute them based on um, uh, revenue, right? We trust them because that's kind of how they got famous in the first place, right? Google was the one honest search engine out there in 1999. Um, and, 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 and Google promises not to do that, but Google might not promise that in the future. Google might not be Google in the future. Google might not exist in the future. What do we do in a situation where we don't have Caesar, right? Or we don't have Julius Caesar and we're stuck with um, Claudius, great, right, yeah. What do we do under that situation? Um, well, for that reason, right, we, we shouldn't necessarily trust that Google's benevolence will last forever. We should be looking forward 50 to 100 years in terms of the guidelines for our information ecosystem. And, and this is really the guiding argument of my entire book, that it's wrong to look at the last 10 years of Google and say that the behavior of Google the last 10 years, which has been so wonderful for us, will determine or influence or, or, or even reflect uh, Google's behavior and our interaction with it over the next 10 years. Things could change pretty fast. Who thought 10 years ago General Motors would be broke, right? Um, so these are, these are important things to remember, uh, and these are part of the problem of trusting so much important stuff to one company. So that's number one. Number two, I think we should make sure that there is space for potential competitors to rise in all these different areas. And that means being vigilant in terms of competition law and antitrust law. Uh, I think that's really important. I'm actually thrilled that there is a sort of new vision of antitrust emerging um, uh, to a small degree within the Justice Department right now under the Obama administration, but to a much larger degree in the, in the legal academy, a, a, very, a, a new and creative way of looking at, at antitrust that gets beyond the Chicago school of sort of price-based antitrust. That's a long conversation that you, believe me, you don't want to hear me going into right now. Nonetheless, I think there is a, a, a pretty exciting revival of antitrust uh, that, uh, that is going to look at that situations like the web, situations like Google, which seem on its face to be highly competitive but are not really. Um, and, and I think that, that we need to be able to uh, legal enforce, legally enforce space for new companies to rise and challenge them. Thirdly, I do think there are occasions when public investment is proper. Um, I do think, for instance, the notion of creating a global digital library is our business, those of us in the, in the academy, those of us involved with libraries, those of us who are uh, invested in uh, the, the knowledge ecosystem of the next 50 years. I do think that that's the sort of project that the public should be heavily invested in, not unlike the Human Genome Project. Um, in fact, what I, I, my concluding chapter is called the Human Knowledge Project, in which I posit this notion. I, remember, the Human Genome Project was this, uh, it was this uh, sort of 
frustrated, disparate collection of independent projects for years, underfunded, um, uncoordinated, uh, high, way too, too competitive, um, until Solera, right, fast-moving, smart-thinking uh, private company comes along with super technology and says, hey, don't worry about it. You guys forget it. Stop the public investment. We'll do it for free. We just want a piece of the transaction costs, right? And what happened was the exact opposite of what happened with Google Book Search. Because when Solera announced it was going to do the Human General Project faster, cheaper, basically for free, right, assume all the costs, the scientists of the world said, no way. And they went to their political leaders and they said, you know what, we need serious public investment and we need to do this because we can't let one company govern, not own, but govern the distribution of this knowledge because we don't know what we're going to get out of it and it's too important for the long term. Uh, and what we got was a competitive project publicly funded that did very well. In fact, tied Solera in the race, if there was such a thing, uh, and to this day remains a vital part of such research. Um, instead, what we had with Google Book Search is um, uh, too many of us in this world said, oh, thank goodness, we don't have to write the check now. Google's going to do it. You know? And so what I would like to see is a human knowledge project, one that looks 50 to 100 years down the road and said, what sorts of standards do we need? What sorts of laws do we need? Right? We clearly need to totally rewrite copyright to make this sort of project happen. Because you can't do this quick route around with some feeble fair use excuse, which doesn't even matter beyond the borders of the United States. Um, you've got to do it in a much more comprehensive and global way. If we really want to do it, if we don't want to do it, let's just not do it. Right? But let's not pretend that Google's going to actually do it for us. I have a couple of linked questions. The first, mm -hmm. I mean, comes out of the Google search thing. Uh, it seems the missing term here seems to be temporality. I feel this is not a, uh, I mean, all these Google search pictures are taken a particular snapshot in time. Oh, yeah, yeah, so sure. So they're not as if they're updated no, normally. So I'm just wondering what difference temporality makes. That you go, all you get is the information as it were at a certain slice of time. And second, and I think one of the implications for that seems to me that the, the, Google, the Google model to organize the world's information and make the university accessible, clearly it's an impossibility, right? Mm. Because there is no end to information, right? So uh, whatever the claim may be, and temporality becomes a useful thing because if you actually start gathering data at every second in time, every fraction of a second in time, there's no end to it, right? Sure. So there's a way in which that is a ground-up impossibility to begin with. And what it also seems to posit is the notion that, you kn that information is, even though it's not entirely correct, but on one level it is, that information is entirely horizontal. Mm. That there are, and what the search algorithm does in some sense is to verticalize it, to create hierarchies of information. Within. So, so that seems to be the other questions to, with, to do with how one creates different hierarchies of information. Um, I just want to know what your response Yeah, okay, well, uh, my response um, is not as interesting as Google's response to all this, right? Um, so just to, because it's actually easier for me to sort of give you a sense of what Google's thinking uh, or people inside Google are thinking about each of these issues. I hope I can. Let's see if I can. Um, in terms of hierarchies, um, Google wants to pretend that it's not generating stable hierarchy. It's certainly not. But temporarily, temporarily it is, right? Every search it invents its own hierarchy instantly with a number of variables, not just incoming links, but also where you sit and what you've asked for before, right? So every search is essentially unique. It's, it's essentially unique. Now, searches can be very similar. So if you search for Red Sox today in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and you search for Red Sox next month in Dallas, Texas, you might get a very uh, a slightly different set of results. Red Sox is probably not the best example. Um, 
uh, if you search for something highly, oh, search for your own name sitting at your own computer logged in, and then search for your own name sitting at some computer where you're not logged in, some, some you know, your, your aunt's computer or something, you will get a different set of results. Um, so every search is somewhat unique, and that actually has a tremendous implication for whatever stability of knowledge we want to attach to knowledge, right? So that, that means that, that basically every result is specific to its time and place and searcher. And you could imagine the information being organized the, entirely The algorithm is not necessarily the same because they do change it every, well, every it's few no months. Well, longer to temporal yes. duration than my search from one day to the next. But I mean, if one takes Bing or something like that, you may have a different search algorithm with, with different, and therefore it will offer a different hierarchization of information. So you can right. have, have competing hierarchies of information depending on what kind of algorithmic structure decides what kind of information counts as your first page, et cetera. Exactly, et cetera. exactly. Now, but the very fact that Google does change its algorithm often, I think is an important implication here too. Because um, what I'm trying to get to is the notion that we're using the same technology to shop and to learn, right? And that may not be the right way to proceed, especially as Google finally tunes its results to make shopping better. And that's essentially what it's been doing. So. Um, now, in some ways, that can make learning and searching better, too, you know, because if you're trying to find an answer to something, often finding the local answer is the right answer, but not always. Um, and certainly, that's not the best set of results for everything. So that's one way of sort of, I mean, dancing around both the question of hierarchy and temporality, temporality with that. So, but that's about the best I can do right now. Sorry. Sir? I'm Marty, why don't you introduce yourself, please? I'm Marty Marks. Uh, in music, actually, but uh, I'm interested in a, a number of issues that you've raised, going right back to the way the talk was publicized with the idea of Google is God, Google is the deity of our time, sure. Google is a business, and you've presented both sides of that coin, <laughs> right. um, or whatever, both sides of that question. But I wondered, when you started talking briefly about the idea of Google as the university of the globe, the global university, or that's how it wants to be seen, uh, about the idea that you kept going back to, this is not democratic, this is hierarchy. We just heard mm. about the hierarchy. Is there any system, is not every system of human thought and human organization of knowledge bound to be hierarchical? Exactly. All right. So. And why should, I mean, what would, what would be different about a human knowledge project except that you would have committees of scholars working on it? Mm. And they are not democratic. So yeah, exactly. do we really want a democratically determined uh, system of knowledge? Or are we not inherently looking for some people to present themselves that we trust to know more? I'm not saying Google sure. is that, that person or that group of people. Because the, the last thing you just said, the shopping equals uh, learning, is of course what America's all about. And that's, because Google began in America, it's probably a very different thing from what it might have been if it had begun in England. That's right? one consideration. I've been thinking through that, and I, I'm not sure that that's exactly true. I think it would have been very similar had it been started in England, but um, the imperative is, is that um, Google depends on its ad revenue, and so almost all of its decisions are geared to maximizing the attention formula. But okay, so but getting to this notion of democratic. Now, you're absolutely right. You can forget any pretense of having a radically democratic knowledge system that's usable anytime soon, right? Um, you know, hardcore anarchists might disagree with this, but it, I don't think you can 
Yeah, but see, Wikipedia in action is no longer democratic. It's actually much more Republican, and that's actually where I was going. Is and with a, with a small R, because there is because there is um, there are essentially representatives. They're not elected representatives, but they're representatives who have achieved status through contribution in Wikipedia, who have uh, uh, much more uh, effect on what shows up in Wikipedia than I do. Who, and I've contributed a sentence here or there, right? So I'm. I'm a minor figure in Wikipedia. Um, uh, and yet, there are people who have uh, are sort of earned cred in Wikipedia, who, who are the elites in Wikipedia. Now, so granted, yes, the, it is, there are more and less democratic systems. I think Wikipedia is remarkably democratic. It's just not radically democratic. Um, but uh, the problem with Google's system is that it, it is uh, opaque about, its, um, uh, about the biases uh, embedded in the system. That's the problem. It takes real investigation uh, and examination to even feel around for the biases in the system. Um, and I mean, there are a number, generally web searches, uh, privileges, um, the technological results over the non-technological results. I mean, there's weird things like that. Uh, Google biases everything toward speed in terms of the system. There's a whole, I have a whole section on what Google's biases are all about, but I mean, nothing fatal, but you know. Um, Nonetheless, it's important for us to recognize that, as opposed to operating under this illusion that Google is somehow neutral, um, that it is a, a flat plane of glass. And there are many statements by Google's officials that seem to lead to the fact that they want us to think that it is a flat plane of glass. And I think that's deeply unfortunate. Um, and that's one of the things I would like to puncture with this. Um, now, the Human Knowledge Project doesn't necessarily have to be a team of scholars deciding what's important and what's not. But it does, I think it should create generate protocols, Wikipedia being a nice um, starting place in terms of governance that can help um, people figure out what is maybe better or worse in terms of information. But that's a, another long conversation about how the Human Knowledge Project might pursue. Per, pursue. Uh, so Robert Thau, alumnus, and uh, I also worked on Apache long ago. Um, uh, in terms of what might be a privacy threat you know, there's institutions out there other than Google. You know, yeah. Facebook, for instance, which you know explicitly represents a lot of stuff that Google would have to infer and could become a, a lot more obnoxious a lot quicker if they wanted to. So, um, in, ter in terms of, uh, so how do you how do you see it in terms That's of good. which threats people ought to be worried about first? Yeah, actually, I think Google's pretty low in terms of like direct privacy threats, the classic privacy threats, the FBI coming to look and finding a false positive because somebody searched for, you know, the wrong terms the wrong couple of times, um, uh, largely because Google um, is not that interested in, um, uh, in in these dossiers. I mean, they're interested in terms of focusing your personal search experience, um, but uh, they first of all they uh, they essentially anonymize a lot of their data after ninety days. Um, that's not perfect security by any means. We've already seen anonymized data easily retraced to, to identify people. Um, I'm not afraid of a data dump the way that, that AOL did a huge data dump a few years ago or that you know, Visa on occasion does a huge data dump or a huge security problem. Um, and again, I'm not afraid of you know, a Big Brother scenario. Um, I'm actually not afraid of anything, but I think it's important to remember that the amount of power we invest in Google uh, today is worth 
being concerned about and watching as Google changes. Because Google might change into something a lot more pernicious over time. That's one concern. But 2009, 2010, I'm not worried at all about the private information that Google has about me. I actually use Google Health. I uploaded my health records. I use every Google product I can find because I'm kind of the guinea pig in this thing, situation, right? Um, and it's, but it's also my way of saying I don't think that a boycott or, you know, is, is the proper way of dealing with Google. It actually, the proper way of dealing with Google is if you have a problem with the company, um, you either find another service or better than that, you go to your legislators and say, let's, let's figure out a way to rein in the externalities. Um, I actually think that's what democratic governance is all about. Um, but no, I don't think it's a big, I think Facebook is a much bigger problem, yeah. So I'm just going to chime in and, sorry, sorry to jump the queue. Um, so it sounds to me from the framing, your framing of this whole argument that, tell me if I might be wrong on this, but what I'm hearing is that one of, one of your complaints is that what Google does when it tries to informationize the world is it strips away semiotic content, it renders the world flat in a sense by turning everything into data. Yeah. And of course here we're speaking in the home of Claude Shannon who, who many moons ago did much the same thing. Sure. Um, and yet when we see the pushback, when we see the problem in Japan and the lowering of the camera by 15 inches or whatever they did, the pushback of culture. And one of the things that I find really interesting about it is what's the granularity? Universality is a, is a long, you know, we long sought goal, never as far as I know been manifest in any way. This is probably the closest we've come. And yet what we're seeing back is a, we're seeing a pushback from culture. And is there a granularity? Is there a point at which that quest for universality breaks down into the cultural, where the cultural reimposes itself, the semiotic fights back as it were? Yeah. Well, we're seeing it, we're seeing it in a number of places, right? So Street View in Japan, I think, is, is one of those flashpoints. I think the um, remarkable pushback on book search in the United States is something Google had not anticipated culturally, right? That a lot of people, especially in the academy, are suddenly saying, that Google's book search as constituted by the settlement is not anywhere near as um, open or even useful as, uh, as we'd been led to believe. Um, we're, we've seen a lot of this in Google's failure to establish itself as a powerful force in either Russia or China um, for reasons that are somewhat political and somewhat cultural. So in China, Google is a little less than 30% of the search market. Uh, and that's still a lot of people, right? That's, that's a pretty great business. To be 30% of China's market in anything is, you know, you can live a long time on that. Um, nonetheless, uh, it, it can't seem to grow very fast. And there are a number of hypotheses for this. Um, one, uh, I've read articles that argue that Google doesn't handle simple Mandarin as well as the homegrown search engines. That may be true. I have no way of testing that, right? Um, I have no way of knowing how anyone would test that. Um, but secondly, uh, I, I think a much more um, a sort of you know s a simple argument and probably more persuasive is that our hypothesis is that that um, Baidu, the most popular search engine in China, uh, gives easy direct links to uh, to pirated music, um, and Google won't do that um, because Google doesn't want to anger uh, you know global media companies right by doing this. Um, so what Google has done in the last six months is cut a deal with commercial music sites, music industry, the, all the big record labels. They basically said, look, you and I are both losing out in China because everyone's going to Baidu and getting all the pirated music directly. So how about this? How about we offer authorized music to the Chinese market uh, and place ads next to it to generate revenue so you get some revenue and we get 
a reason for people to come to Google. Um, and it remains to be seen whether that's actually going to topple Baidu or, or, or eat into Baidu's market. I haven't seen numbers lately. Um, but basically, that's their way of saying it. Look, you know, you got to give up. They were saying to the record labels, you got to give up on China. We're not willing to give up on China. We'll give you a nickel for these ads instead of a dollar for selling the, selling the song. Um, and uh, so, there, so, so there may be some, some uh, hope there for Google. Google is used by the cosmopolitan elite in China overwhelmingly, people who do international business. Um, by expats, <coughs> uh, Baidu is, I guess, considered uh, uh, a lot more sort of uh, grungier, down to earth in terms of its experience. Um, that's my sense of it. Uh, Russia's similar problems. Actually, there may be nationalism issues in Russia. Uh, Joel Burgess, uh, literature. But I guess William just sort of answered my question in part, which is the. <laughs> odd, uh, that the, this kind of cultural pushback and the granularity is something that's sort of um, telling in yeah. terms of what happens in terms of the content. And that's what I was actually thinking about in relationship to the, the British response. Um, uh, I don't know enough about the way British cultural politics work in relationship to the state to make a convincing argument for this. But it seems as if they're sort of responding to the fact that they are observed all the time. So it, maybe it's not actually about the fact that they knew it was coming, but it's about the fact that they can respond to this yes. unthreatening threat um, within the culture in a really displaced way. Um, and I guess the question I had there is you had a lot of metaphors floating around um, surveillance on the one hand, uh, uh, governance on the other, right? These are connected metaphors if we're Foucault or something. Um, divinity um, is in there too. Right. Uh, I guess what I'm wondering about here is what would be the overriding metaphor? Because one of the things that keeps striking me is that um, we had a conversation here uh, a few weeks ago about the relationship between internet technology as a platform for new articulations of publicness or publicity. Okay. Um, and it seems like in all of these cases you're getting kind of a weird pushback around what it means to be public um, uh, versus what it means to be private. And I find this kind of interesting because we tend to think about the internet as a new version of the public sphere, right. a new iteration of it, and yet in each of these instances, it doesn't seem to be iterating a new public sphere as much as exposing a particular public sphere in each case. Yeah. Um, and often that public sphere is kind of boring, right? It's a guy pissing by the side of the road. Um, well, I would, um, also, I would say publicity and public sphere are not the same thing. This is all about publicity, right? So. Public well, spheres are yeah, so I guess that's my question. Right. Like, how would you articulate? Is that what Google is doing? Is it articulating a discourse of publicity that's different than the public sphere? Um, what's the relationship between those discourses as they circulate here? So on and well, so Well, I try to consider this. I, I ended up writing some really boring paragraphs about it and tossing this out. But this very notion of, of, of how, um, how uh, the Google experience um, might play into a notion of a public sphere which we've been yearning to replicate online for so long. And as far as I'm concerned, I don't really see it happening. Um, I see a lot of, uh, now, as I said, publicity and publicness are not the same thing as the public sphere. Public sphere is uh, a very specific um, uh, description of, a, of an environment in which people may deliberate um, calmly and clearly and politely and somewhat equally. And, you know, I mean, I don't even know that we've ever seen that on Earth, let alone on the Internet. Um, uh, but then, you know, the Internet affords us all these different ways to be public um, and very few ways to be private, but that's all right. Um, we have other ways to be private. Um, so, but uh, your first question about the 
override, the, the overriding metaphor. I mean, the, I think the most important metaphor that I'm invoking is governance because ultimately my point is we have relinquished governance to this company for better or worse. And we're lucky that it's such a nice company, actually. Like, we're actually very fortunate that it doesn't abuse us the way it could if it wanted to. Um, so that leads to two things. One, that we may not be this lucky forever because this company may not be this company forever. Secondly, are we really doing the right thing by allowing this company to govern the web? Shouldn't we actually have a say in how the web is governed? And if so, how do we do so in a way that doesn't disrupt the instruments of commerce, the incentives that have built uh, so many really cool things, right? We want to do it carefully and gently if we do it at all uh, in a way that actually uh, you know, mitigates negative externalities and promulgates positive externalities. That's a huge trick. Um, it's it's going to be quite an effort. But I think we haven't even started that conversation because we've been just so, just so dazzled by all the cool stuff we've had to play with in the past 20 years um, that we haven't even sat down and said, let's make a list of how things should be, um, which is kind of what I'd like to start with this book. Uh, Scott Osterweil, Research Director at CMS. Um, any evidence in their interactions with uh, regulators to date whether Google would take a stance at all different from Standard Oil or J.P. Morgan. Oh yeah, or? yeah. No, I mean Google is very libertarian in its rhetoric. Not surprisingly, right? Because it it emerged out of this govern governmentless um, uh, uh, stew, right? Uh, primordial ooze, right? And um, uh, uh, Google asserts under every regulatory challenge, first of all, that uh, uh, number one, it does no harm. So what's the problem? Right? No demonstrable harm, right? And that, that's, a, that's a pretty big burden, right? I mean, invoking the harm principle is a pretty good way of, of taking a libertarian position. It's, you know, 1859 is when we started dealing with that, right? So secondly, um, uh, um, <clears throat> by the way, that, you know, like we're doing all this anniversary of the, on the origin of species, um, but it's also on Liberty's uh, uh, anniversary as well because they were both 1859. Um, so uh, uh, the, the, the second thing Google does under um, threat of regulation is, uh, is basically uh, do the same thing that the Motion Picture Association has done for years, which is no problem, we can self-govern. You know, we can self-govern because we're going to put all these tools in there that let you yourself uh, uh, arrange your orientation with this company uh, and thus mitigate any harm Again, for those who actually know how to do it, how to navigate that system. Um, and that's been its, its basic reaction. So questions about competition, antitrust, and, and the power over markets, because Google right now has a tremendous amount of power over online advertising, which is its real market. Right? If you want to do online advertising, you've got to deal with Google in some way, you know, in either primary or secondary way. Um, what is Google's answer to that? Google has this weird excuse where it says, well, you know, in another month, someone can come up with a better search engine and topple us, and we'd be over in six months. And that's not exactly true, because Google is not just code. right? It's not just an algorithm. It's actually a whole lot of sunken costs. It's many millions of dollars, billions of dollars probably, in servers, in, 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 the, in the generators, in the solar panels, in the bandwidth, you know, all that fiber optic cable it bought uh, when no one else wanted it. 
Um, these are all things that Google has sunk into its physical infrastructure that we don't ever see, right? We don't have the, 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 that, that moment of, um, I, I wanted this moment when I went, first time I went to the Googleplex, I wanted to have what I call the Henry Adams moment when Henry Adams walks in and sees the dynamo at the World's Fair and just goes, whoa, this is a new world I'll never understand, right? I expected to have that. It didn't happen because you walk into the Googleplex and you see a lot of people playing volleyball and you see desks with computers. And it looks a lot like where I work, you know? So I didn't have that moment. But I think if I'd gone to like a server farm in Oregon or something, I would have had the Henry Adams moment. Those are the sorts of things you have to remember that, that Google is more than just its, its code and its coders. Okay, we'll take one last question. Um, um, I suppose my question builds on Joel's. Um, mm. And I was wondering whether you could speculate a bit more about how Google is in fact, to the extent to which uh, Google has um, reconfigured the relationship between the public and the private. And I was thinking actually, oh, yeah. it was reminding me of, uh, of Hannah Rents, The Human Condition, where she argues that, uh, well, she's one of the kind of the troubling things about the, the modern world, has to do with, with, the way, with what she calls the rise of social. And the rise of social for her is crucially linked to the erasure of, uh, of a distinction, a necessary distinction yeah. in her view between the public and the private. Of course, that takes its various different forms at various different historical points. So I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about um, the way in which you think that public-private land is being renegotiated and what the implication of that might yeah, be. Yeah, I think it, um, first of all, I don't think there's, uh, looking at public and private with a line is necessarily the healthiest way to do it. Um, and I mean, this could actually be a two-hour conversation uh, because I've actually written a lot about how Richard Sennett, Aaron's student, thought about public and private in this term too. But um, let me just say that, that Google itself manages our information or information about us in, in three distinct ways. Um, first, there is the great Google vacuum, the fact that it tracks us and, and captures how we interact with Google. And the second way is that Google offers to the world all of this disparate, potentially embarrassing information out there that other people publish, right? The, the bad poem we wrote in 1997 that we happened to post on a Usenet group and we thought was lost forever is now available you know, through a Google search, right? Um, that sort of stuff. The, uh, the um, you know, um, all that all that weird stuff in our backgrounds that we thought would be forgotten, right? This weird thing of the the very notion of forgetting is now um, up for grabs because of the permanence of this collection of data. Uh, that's a really weird thing that we haven't come to terms with yet. Um, and then the third way is the way that Google actively captures the world and Street View being, uh, I think, the best example of this, right? So Google is interacting with us in these three ways, two of them passive, one of them active. Um, and in each case, you know, it, it's our duty, it's up to us to uh, manage our own reputations. So uh, the notion of private and public, um, I'm not sure that Google has a direct role in any reconfiguration of that, but that's been a 50-year, 60-year renegotiation um, for a variety of other reasons that predate Google. So, Siva, thank you very much for tonight's uh, appreciate talk. It. Thanks very much for having me. <laughs>